The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Hello there and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. It's time for part three of our Bertie O'Hearn series. Pat, when last we spoke, Charlie McCreevy and Bertie O'Hearn had sluiced the streets and roads of the nation with vast floods of cash, uh, ensuring a very successful 2002 general election, almost coming within reach of the fabled overall majority, but not quite. Yeah, there are a few seats short of an overall majority. And let us recall back that during this election campaign, so uh, so sensitive was Fianna Fáil and Bertie Hearn in particular to this idea that they might get an overall majority. And so aware was he that actually that might scare people away from voting for Fianna Fáil that he said over the course of the election, we referred to this in the last episode, that, geez, you know, even if I got, a, 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 even if I got an overall majority, I'd still form a coalition government, which... You know, would be <laughs> unprecedented in the history of politics. I think <laughs> unprecedented for for good reason. Uh, I, I think that fellows who win majorities normally want to govern a lot. But I Michael McDowell's famous "shimmy up the lamppost" or whatever it was managed to scare off enough potential voters to well, just you make know, isn't them fall it, short. It's, it's, it's of course difficult to disaggregate you know, the various components of a campaign from the actual result. One of the things that we often, I think often leads to mistakes in the analysis of election campaigns is that we assume that everything that the winners did worked and everything that the losers did failed and it, 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 you know, that's, that's rarely actually the case. What we do know has happened is that the possibility of Fianna Fáil winning an overall majority becomes a, an issue at the end of uh, the campaign when it does are subsequent to it becoming an election uh, an election issue, Fianna Fáil fails to win an overall majority that it did look odds on um, to win. Which, which is not to say that this is not a triumphant election for Bertie Ahern. It's hugely successful, and apart from anything else, I, I do recall at the time, people in the aftermath of it were saying, is this the end of Fine Gael? Is it gone for good? You know, so Yeah, you because really Fine Gael had a very difficult election, not least that they are trying to, you know, they're trying to fight a, a government that has a, a record of un precedented economic achievement behind it. And unlike sometimes when a government goes in claiming unprecedented uh, economic achievements during its term of office, this was something that people really felt. The country felt richer. This was the quintessential boom time election. And really, I don't think there's any chance that Fine Gael were going to win this election. As it happens, they have a difficult election. Difficult election. Michael Noonan knifes John Bruton, the previous leader, before a year before the election. He um, he fights the election, but most people will remember it for not for him kind of you know struggling to articulate uh, uh, an alternative to the government of Bertie Hearn, but they'll recall him being hit with a custard pie in Roscommon, and it really kind of said all that needed to be said about Michael Noonan's political look at that stage. You know that he was the one rather than anybody else who ended up being hit with a custard pie. Anyway, government is formed very quickly. 
quickly. Afterwards, um, there's a uh, programme for government negotiations, which really take place uh, over the same, over the a same government of days. essentially is the same shape of government as previously. Same shape of government, except without um, the necessity to bring independence on board. Although Ahern is quite careful to maintain a relationship with independence throughout uh, throughout this period. So the honeymoon is pretty short for uh for for this uh, for this government because one of the things and and there were very few people spotted this over the course of of the election campaign one of the people who did was the former Taoiseach Gareth Fitzgerald who used to write an economics column on Saturday in the op-ed pages of the Irish Times so Gareth Fitzgerald had spotted that actually there has been a serious slowdown in tax revenues in the first six months of the year. And this is related to the fact that the world is pitched into, after 9-11, which takes place the previous September, and the collapse of the, the, the what we now know to be the first tech bubble, um, that uh, the, 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 the global economy grinds to, uh, I mean, just grind to a halt, but as a, as a figure of speech. No, but it's a pretty, a it's a pretty serious slowdown e- e- economic growth, slowdown yes, for, for 12 or 18 months. Exactly. Yeah, and this affects, uh, this affects the, the, uh, uh, the Irish economy. But McCreevy, who is at this stage in the process of absolutely pumping spending into the economy in the period immediately before the election refuses to admit it. And over the course of the election, he says that there are absolutely no cutbacks in public spending uh, envisaged. And that is not what the, the Fianna Fáil government will do if it takes, uh, if it wins the election and takes office. So you can guess the rest of the story, of course. Immediately after the election in July, the government announces a series of now, we can dance on the head of a pin here. Are these cutbacks or are they reductions in planned increases in public spending? Whatever, however you define them, they are perceived as cutbacks in public spending. And it is also perceived that the government has lied to people before the election. Stephen Collins, who at that time was uh, political editor of the Sunday Tribune, and he got hold of a government memo uh, from July outlining many of these cuts. And this was in the days, government memos, um, I'm pleased to say, are ten a penny in news stories nowadays. But at the time, it was very, very unusual for, uh, for, uh, for a government memo to find its way to a journalist. In fact, I remember once, uh, around about the same time, maybe a couple of years later, getting, um, getting my hands on a government memo and publishing it and uh, I, I was um, I was treated to a, uh, a visit by the Gardaí uh, who were conducting Ooh, an investigation. How, how, how exciting. It's a tremendously can, exciting can I just, whole thing. Just ask you, looking back at this, the hindsight is a wonderful thing, 20, 20 years, more than 20, 20 years ago, is this not good cynical, pragmatic politics. They bribed the electorate to get back into power. They didn't tell them the truth. And as soon as they were back in, they did what needed to be done. They turned around. I seem to remember, recall Pat Rabbit 10 years after this saying, this is what happens. Pat Rabbit, of course, those comments that you you refer to, what what Pat Rabbit would say, that they uh, that that he meant, he said, this isn't that what happens in elections. Now, what he was referring to as the simplification of election messages that you are not entering all the caveats that are necessary, uh, you know, when you're formulating policy. And he said, you know, you simplify things at the course of election. I think what happened here is not so much that uh, that people, you know, felt that the government was doing the wrong thing. It was that they felt they had been lied to by the election. But hadn't Charles Hawhey done exactly the same thing 15 years before in 1987? 
uh, he had for which his family, but that is always remembered, isn't it? Isn't that always remembered as one of Mahi's many sins? Is that it's also remembered as sort of one of his one of his more venial sins, and that it contributed to economic recovery, and it had to be done. And of course, he was supported by Fine Gael in it. And yes, it had to be, had had to be done on all of this. And 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 really, at the time, people weren't disputing the fact that if tax revenues were decreasing and government spending had to be reined in, but that they, I don't think people were objecting so much to that is that they were objecting to the fact that only two months previously, Charlie McCreevy gone before and said, absolutely, this is not going to happen. And the, the, the McCreevy, of course, and we discussed his, the nature of his, uh, of his tenure as finance minister in the last episode. And McCreevy, of course, was entirely unrepentant uh, about this to the extent that he told a rest of meeting of Fianna Fáil backbenchers that it was his job to win the election for Fianna Fáil. Uh, not to win it for Fianna Gael or for Labour, but to win it for Fianna Fáil. So did McCreevy make matters worse because he of did. his ebullient approach to this U-turn? He did. He did. And uh, and he in doing so, and maybe it was kind of after the hubris of a resounding election win that I suppose with the, you know, this is barnstorming Fianna Fáil campaign that comes within a whisker of an overall majority but still needs the PDs and the PDs who had a very good election they double their seats from four to eight they are also part of the government so in a way that was exactly what McCreevy would have uh, would have wanted and the whole thing is, is I think the, 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 the mood of the time that late summer autumn of 2002 is encapsulated in a headline from the Star newspaper uh, which simply blared screwed by liars. And this was suggesting that the government were the liars and the screwers and the unfortunate screwies were the... You won't uh, get a headline of that quality in the Irish Times, I'm sorry to say. One of the many reasons why, you know, I get my news from the star. And, you know, in a way, the the cuts weren't enormous. In actual fact, I did an exercise uh, at the the time or shortly afterwards when, when writing about it. And the full magnitude of the cuts was actually something only like about 100 million. Or something. It was initially supposed to be five hundred million. It was only it was only about a hundred million. And Hearn was privately furious about this. He was furious at the fact that it had to be done. He was furious at the fact that McCreevy insisted on doing it, and he was furious at the political damage that it inflicted on that government. Because just after its triumphant re-election, it is immediately pitched into a situation that it hadn't had for several years, which is that a government is hugely unpopular and people think that they've been screwed over by uh, by the government. And when that happens, things that may not be hugely significant to themselves take on a symbolic importance because they represent the fact that the, the public has turned against this crowd and they don't like them anymore. So there's there's everything from e-voting, which is introduced on a pilot basis in the election and ends up costing vast amounts of money. This will be familiar to our listeners to more contemporary events. Vast sums of public money are wasted on on this project and it's a, it's a source of much frustration. That's right. There's this series of kind of self-inflicted wounds by the uh, by the government which are made worse by their own management of it and its narrative really sets that as well as having lied their way back into power that this government which let us not forget is still presiding over this extraordinary economic uh, economic boom at the time that um that this government is 
arrogant, it's out of touch. And, you know, there's an element of truth to this. I mean, the e-voting, I suppose, is now relegated to very much as a kind of a footnote in modern Irish political history. But for months and months and months, it absolutely raged as a political controversy. And just for people that are unaware of it, it was this, this, the idea was to introduce electronic, uh, electronic voting that you wouldn't go and mark your ballot paper with, uh, 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 with a pencil, uh, pa- paper, one, paper, one, two, pencil. three, four, five, and exactly, your preferences. Exactly, that you would, mm. you would go up to a machine and you would uh, indicate your preferences. And the advantage of it was that the result was declared then, once the count was begun, the re- result was declared instantaneously. And this was piloted in three constituencies in the 2002 election. And apart from the kind of brutality of the experience for some of the politicians who lost their seats, including Nora Owen, actually, who was a Fine Gael, probably prominent Fine Gael frontbencher at the time, that she was simply, instead of the drawn out period of allowing them to prepare for it over over two days, of course, which politicians don't like counts either, you know, I mean, the only people who like counts are the the likes of you and me. But uh, actually, this was something that Fianna Fáil was absolutely convinced of at the time that this e-voting controversy was getting such airplay because the media and RT in particularly so loved election counts they didn't want them to disappear to be just a series of uh, of, uh, of results. Uh, Martin Cullen was the Minister for the Environment and he was in charge of that. Noel Dempsey uh, had been the uh, had been the Minister before and Dempsey had of course charged ahead with this. Cullen decided absolutely would charge ahead with this and Cullen took to saying things like I mean a bit of a campaign began to get going in 2002 into 2003 about it and, you know, those, uh, you know, the, the, the real terror of, uh, of a minister, you know, a well-informed, reasonable layman that the media love. A couple of these people began to investigate the plans and investigate the security of the technology. And expressing doubts about that security. Yeah, and yeah. Colin, Colin took the same things like, you know, this is, you know, the most... Will I do my Martin Cullen impression? This is the most secure, the most secure electronic system in the world. Okay, I'm not okay. sure about that one, Pat. No, I need to check no. back. Uh, needs work. Uh, but, but... <laughs> <laughs> that is to say, it's like more, more secure than NASA, than the Pentagon is the Irish e-voting things. Now, this is, of course, immediately disputed by experts in the field. And it kind of became apparent that actually all what Colin and the government were saying about it, about it, was that, uh, you know, they actually didn't know about it. They were just repeating the lines that had been given to them by uh, by civil servants. But the big question they were kind of unable to answer the whole way through this was, why are we doing this? What is wrong with the old system that is prompting us to replace it? And that was never a question that they really had a satisfactory answer that resonated with people uh, 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 throughout, the, throughout the whole controversy. Anyway, to cut a long story. Bertie Heard himself, I recall, was sort of implying that this was some kind of Stone Age way of doing your business and a modern, thrusting nation needed something more in accord with the times. That's right, yeah, yeah. And that also kind of fell completely flat given that, you know, there's quite a lot of things that were done with pen and paper or with, as I think the, as I think the Bert called it at the time, with that, that Pierre and Louis mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, and the paper. Anyway, anyway so... Um, the political management in government begins to think, oh, Jesus, hold on a second, you know, we've got to have, we're having second thoughts about this. And there's a meeting down at the Department of the Environment in the Customs House and Martin Collins' advisors are saying to the, uh, saying to the civil servants, that is the, you know, permanent, uh, permanent civil service, look, 
we're going to have to pause this and take a take a rain check and examine it again. The politics of it are, are running against us. And at that meeting, then the civil servants told Cullen that actually they'd already gone ahead and placed the order for the machines. And how much was that to cost? Forty-two million euros, which was which is still a lot of money. Still but a lot of money. A lot of money. A lot in, of money at the time. So the government then is in right. this position where it has expended the money. It's tied to this thing anyway. The whole thing is eventually junked, but it inflicts great political damage on the government. And there was a couple of other, there was a couple of other self-inflicted wounds at this stage. Noel Dempsey was Minister for Education, said he was going to bring back, or was thinking about bringing back university fees. There was a massive backlash against that, not least from within the government, from the progressive Democrats, you know, who were, you know, always very, very attuned to the concerns of the middle class voting base, I think is the best way to, uh, the best that's way I to think that's it. a good way. That's a good way to put it. And we'll return to that after this short break. You're listening to the Irish Times. So things are generally going wrong left. And meanwhile, Bertie Ahern's eyes are on better things or bigger things a lot of the time, aren't they? Because stuff is happening in the world. The EU's expanding. Bertie is a is a senior leader now, probably in the EU. And oh, for sure. Yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and Ireland, of course, holds the presidency of the European Union in the first half of 2004. We'll get that in a sec. But actually, before we get that, there's one other thing that's worth mentioning, which is McCreevy's first budget of this new government. And we know what he had done in his previous budgets. You know, he had, in the early part of that uh, government, he had cut taxes massively. People might recall the capital gains tax uh, was cut from 40% to 20% in one go. The higher rate of income tax has come down from 48% to 42%. So it's very significant tax cuts. And then he lashes spending into the public sector in the two budgets before the general election. But He's just gone through this period where he's been pulling back on the spending. So what's he going to do in his 2003 budget delivered at the end of 2002? And that's when we get this decentralization program. So he announces it. It's a huge surprise. He had actually, unlike many of McCreevy's previous budgets, he had actually told the cabinet the previous week that he was going to do a big announcement on decentralization. But he also warned them in this, in the sort of way that, that, uh, that, you know, one might warn one's kids that, you know, if, if they don't stop their messing in the back of the car, we're turning around and we're not going to the zoo. Uh, McCreevy said, if I hear a word of this in the press, in the media, I'm going to cancel the whole thing. And it says something about his authority in cabinet and the extent to well, which... Well, yes, it does. Again, not, not for the first time, beg the question of who's, who's the actual really leader. Government. The decentralisation thing was, I mean, there's a very strong argument that Ireland is far too centralised a country and too much of the administration is in Dublin and Dublin is too big vis-a-vis the rest of the country and we've heard endless debates about that. Um, but this wasn't quite the sort of decentralisation that, you know, intellectual economists have discussed over the, the over preceding decades. This was just a kind of a divvy out. It was not the most carefully thought out public project that we've ever seen to the extent that in the days before the budget... McCreevy was ringing around his cabinet colleagues and saying to them things like, what do you want and where do you want it? And the programme as announced 
on Budget Day. And it was the big, the big bang of the budget, which masked the lack of any big tax cuts, any big uh, radical moves, um, uh, from which we come to expect from McCreevy on taxation, economic management. Uh, but decentralisation was the big story. 80,000 public servants to be decentralised out of Dublin. Entire government departments... Were, uh, were, were to move, not just sections that could be coordinated from Dublin, but entire government departments, uh, were to be moved. How was that going to work? Well, you know, we were all gonna, we were all gonna figure that out. Anyway, to cut a long story short, it didn't happen, but it cost a whole heap of money over the succeeding years, and then it cost another heap of money to, uh, to unpick it. So, so there there's are, a recurring theme emerging here, isn't there? Yeah, it is of a willingness to, play politics with policy that is best. Uh, and, you know, there's no doubt that McCreevy was kind of a radical and reforming minister, but he was also willing to s- subject the policymaking process uh, to the needs and vicissitudes of politics. And he was also, in the course of that policymaking process, he was disinclined to listen to many people. That a lot of it, he came up with a small number of advisors. So is part of this, uh, we refer to the EU there, is is part of this down to the fact that Bertie O'Hearn's eye is not on the domestic ball as much as it should be? No, I wouldn't say that. I would say Bertie's eye was always on uh, on the domestic ball. But McCreevy is hugely powerful within the cabinet, as we previously discussed, and he's also hugely uh, independent. But also, I suppose it suits... Bertie from time to time to blame McCreevy for things that go wrong. And, uh, you know, we certainly see that in that period of cutbacks in the autumn of 2002 where, you know, Bertie is letting it be known to his intimates that this is all McCreevy's fault, not uh, not his fault. Well, of course, Whereas one of the... These are decisions of the government. Wasn't it always one of Bertie O'Hearn's great political talents that he was able to comment from time to time on the, you know, the difficulties facing the government and how perhaps something might need to be done while he was himself himself leading that same government? Yeah, so I remember, I, I, I think it might have been Olivia O'Leary who went out and canvassed with him in Dublin Central during one of these elections that we're, uh, we're talking about and she was struck by... Hearn's habit of referring to the government as they, that is, the government of which he was the leader. But it, it bounces back on Bertie as well. And this is seen very much in this period again when he is booed at the Special Olympic Games, which take place in Crow Park. It's this huge festival. But there was a row at the time over funding for some disability services. And McCreevy, again, wouldn't give in on the funding. And, and, and Bertie was audibly boo. And this became a thing in the paper for over that summer, in the papers over that summer, of the booing of Bertie because, you know, a couple of guys, horror of horrors, did it to him at a Dubs Gaelic football match and there was various other instances uh, of it. But it was the, the Special Olympics one because it was from a politically motivated crew who viewed that the government wasn't supporting disability services to the extent that it should and, and they booed him. And that really annoyed him. To the extent... <laughs> To the extent that at the closing ceremony, somebody hired a plane and flew it over Crow Park, trailing a banner which read, Thank you, Bertie. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, time marches on and there are 
another election approaches, which is the local election, and that turns out incredibly badly for Fianna Fáil. Really bad, yeah. This is a 2004 local and European uh, elections. And um, all this time, Fianna Fáil, now bear in mind, we have to keep reminding people that this is a different time. It's a different time and they did things, they did things differently then. And Fianna Fáil always got 40-ish percent in, uh, in a general election. It got a little over 30% of the local and Europeans election. Now, you can imagine if Micheál Martin was getting 30% in the polls now. He'd be delighted. He would be, uh, he'd be the toast of, uh, he'd be the toast of the party. But this was an unprecedented disaster for, uh, for Fianna Fáil. And it was a disaster in the medium that Bertie Ahern most acutely understood it votes in ballot boxes. And Sinn Féin, who at that stage were really kind of only beginning to establish a foothold in Southern politics. They had one TD after the election of 1997. That went up to five in 2002. But at a local level then, so they picked up a whole bunch of seats across the uh, the north side of Dublin. And that really, uh, heartland. Uh, to, 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 to coin phrase, that really hurt the bird. And um, and actually, they also uh, mark the entry onto the national stage of Mary Lou Macdonald, who wins a seat, in, uh, an MEP seat, European Parliament seat in the Dublin constituency, defeating Bertie's uh, Bertie's pal and self-styled young pretender uh, to the throne of the Bert. Royston Brady. Royston Brady. There's a there's a name to conjure with. Oh, from the past. hands if you remember the candidature of Royston Brady. And uh, yeah, so his, his, his campaign his campaign did not go well. I remember at one uh, on one radio radio show where uh, a number of the candidates were quizzed about EU matters, and this was around the time the accession of ten mostly Central and Eastern European countries, former Soviet satellites, to the uh, to the EU, and that was something that Bertie had spent his previous six months doing. But the European candidates were asked, could they name the 10 accession countries? And poor old Royston had a stab at a couple of them and then ventured that maybe Yugoslavia might be, uh, might be acceding to, to the European, to the European, community, uh, European uh, Union. So um, which things, was some, things some, like the Royston Brady incident and some of the other stuff you're describing here, a lot of people would say that what we're seeing here is hubris of some sort or self-overconfidence. You, you know, picking a candidate who really wasn't up to much at all as opposed to picking a candidate who could win an election, which is what Bertie Hearn was supposed to be doing. Yeah, uh, I mean, I th- think there's no doubt of that. I think that you can, you can package this whole period from 2002 into 2004 as, you know, one where hubris takes over. I think of things like his determination to build what became known as the Bertie Bull, which never happened, obviously. Never in the happened. Yeah, massive in football stadium on the edge, on the, on the, on the, on the edge of Dublin. Where we wouldn't be able to go for pints on Baggett Street and walk down to matches and things like that. So, um, so yeah, I think, look, I think that's, I think that's fair enough. Isn't this the story of politics always, you know? And, uh, and, and it tends to happen uh, to political leaders that are very that are very successful. So what Ahern realizes is that he needs a complete reset after this 2004 election. So he's got another 3 years to go to the next general election. He's still very much the dominant figure in uh, in in Irish politics and you know, it's easy to forget, looking back on it, the extent to which he was the dominant personality throughout this whole period. Fine Gael had picked a new leader, Enda Kenny, in 2002. But it would be a stretch, you know, to say that these 2004 
local and European elections were really a testament to Enda's leadership of, uh, of Fianna Gael. They were more about Bertie's leadership of Fianna Fáil and the sense amongst people that Fianna Fáil needed a, a bit of a kicking to keep it on the, uh, on, on the straight and narrow. And this translates then in Bertie Hearn's mind is this need for a reset. And that means getting rid of McCreevy. And so immediately after the local and European uh, results, you begin to see this chatter in the media about a possible a possible reshuffle, possibly because the European Commissioner's gig is uh, has to be filled uh, at this time. And McCreevy perceives, even if McCreevy knows exactly what is going on. And... Uh, and he pushes back against it because he has talked to Ahern the previous year about possibly going to Brussels as Ireland's European Commissioner the following summer. But he decides against it. The Bert has other ideas. Now, I should say at this point that um, Bertie Ahern tells a different version of, uh, of this story in his autobiography. And in fact, it's also fair to point out that many of the characterizations that I may have given to events over uh, over the course of um uh, of this epic series that uh there is an alternative characterization given them there is an alternative uh, version of such, motivation such, such as and life so and such as history I'm, so, I'm choosing to believe so you that that, that, right. uh, that having been uh, that having been said but uh, I'm 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 pretty sure I'm 100% sure that McCreevy initially did not want to go to Brussels. He had decided against going to Brussels. But he sniffed the political wind. Now, would Ahern have told him, I'm getting rid of you, you have to go? I don't know. Not really his style. Not really. No. Not really. But McCreevy also, I think, probably knew that it wasn't, that he wasn't going to have, had he stayed that he wasn't going to have the same sort of freedom of movement uh, in the Department of Finance as he had previously enjoyed. And maybe that was the only way he knew how to do the finance minister's job. And is it job. fair to say, in addition to that, that he, sen- he sensed that the wind was blowing in another direction from what his rough ideological position alongside the PDs was? In other words, that it was blowing a little bit back towards greater uh, state investment, greater state expenditure, less excitement about tax cuts and so on, privatisation and all the rest of it. Yeah, there's no, there's no doubt about that, that the government, that the, the, the repositioning, the rebranding, whatever you want to call it, that Bertie Hearn envisages after that, because he is allergic to this idea that the government is right wing. He used to say to Harney, oh, people say you're right wing, but you're not, you're not really right wing. And of course, when you look at the record of his government's on one side, they look very right-wing. So all that tax cutting, deregulation, all that, that's classic right-wing stuff. But you look on the other side of the ledger and they look fantastically left-wing. In The, uh, in the Economist, as he then was, Dan O'Brien wrote at the time that, you know, the government's fiscal record fits perfectly the stereotype of socialist profligacy. You know, they had vastly increased public spending. They had intervened in the market in all sorts of ways. It was a range of social spending, old age pension, child benefit. That side of the ledger didn't fit the right-wing caricature at all. But McCreevy was identified with that right-wing aspect of the government. And Bertie appreciated that the term right-wing 
are conservative is used in Irish political discourse less as a description than as a term of abuse. And it had appended itself to his government and he needed to change it. And he did that in a sort of, you know, really kind of almost kind of primary colours, basic approach. So McCreevy goes, the Bert declares himself to be heartbroken that his best friend uh, is going to Brussels, but figures that he will have to soldier on without him. Brian Cowan becomes finance minister. And in Cowan's first budget speech, the very first line of it, there's two parts to the first line. The first, first line of it was paying tribute to his predecessor, Charlie McCreevy. The second part of the first line was to make clear that this budget was the work of the government as a whole rather than just one man. And that is a direct repudiation of that approach that McCreevy had. And none of this is very budgets. subtle, really, is it? Because, you know, you, you have Bertie Ahern, uh, you know, after many years in politics, discovering socialism. That's right. This yeah, time. yeah. This is, another, um, this is another part of this. He declares himself to be the Dáil's only, uh, to be the only socialist uh, in the Dáil. Or maybe what he just says he's one of two or three socialists uh, in Himself the and Joe Higgins. Much to the recall. amusement of Joe Higgins at this stage. But the, 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 the principal means of communi- communication for this in that early autumn period was the Fianna Fáil thinking in September, which is down. Down in uh, in Inchidoni in uh, in West Cork, um, many listeners might know it. Big hotel, very ugly to look at, very beautiful to look out from on its uh, on its big beach. And the message in there was uh, the message at that was Fianna Fáil realised the error of his ways. It was going to become more caring. People were actually saying this stuff. This is the new caring, sharing Fianna Fáil message. Colon, we care. And the birth was pictured. Walking on the beach with Cowan and Mary Hannafin, who'd just been appointed. Gazing as, wistfully into the middle right. distance. Yeah. 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 And thinking, think, thinking big thoughts. And, and, thinking, uh, uh, and thinking about the people. And um, one, of the, one, of the, uh, one of the main speakers at the event was Father Sean Healy from the Conference of, uh, of Religious in Ireland, Corey. Uh, but he had been doing very left-wing critiques of government uh, economic policy, economic budgetary policy for years. And he was a real thorn in the side of uh, of the government. I remember one guy saying to me, you know, that um, he had issued whatever his latest critique of government economic policy was and saying, you know, Ireland is now a rich country and therefore we can afford to do X, Y and Z. And somebody saying to me, yes, Ireland is a rich, rich country precisely because we've ignored everything Sean Healy has told us to do for years. Anyway, I'm sure he could stand up for him. himself very I'm sure well. He would. Yeah, yeah. In, in fact, I know it is worth saying that while this pivot is taking place, the broader picture is that that blip or downturn in the global economy has corrected itself, and the Irish economy is continuing to is is starting to fire on all cylinders again. And in fact, we're into I think in a in a previous episode, I think it was episode 173, <laughs> um, uh, I referred to the idea of the good Celtic tiger and the bad Celtic tiger. And this is we're into the bad Celtic tiger time now. There's a lot of money sloshing around. That that it's it's all systems go on the construction and building front. So there's a lot of money coming in from stamp duty in particular there's there've been a number of incentives for property development which are, which you are know, extended which are extended even further and which just pump more money into the system so everything seems to be going gung ho for giving lots of money away in social welfare and and other supports and this is exactly what the government goes on to do and uh you know i mean i think the good Celtic tiger bad Celtic tiger is, is you know like all of these things but gross oversimplification but there is an element of 
truth to it. Because what's really driving growth now is this is internal consumption and things like the construction construction, mark, you know, construction in, in, in David particular. David McWilliams memorably, memorably put it as selling yeah. houses to one another. And then that was then selling so houses it, to one another. It's not manufacturing by, jobs anymore by, that are fueled by death. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and this is, I think this is what McCreevy has gotten rid of for. This is why Brian Cowan is made Minister for Finance. It is to, you know, restore that level of public spending, consistent public spending increases before the election. And that is really filtering through. It's not just that house prices are continuing to climb. It's uh, it's that, you know, pay is going up. I mean, in 2005, uh, earnings in the public sector rise by 10%. Over the course of, uh, of 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 one year, and now I, I I think it I think it should probably be said, you know, that such critiques as there are of this are coming from occasionally economic commentators. They're not really coming from the opposition in the doll. The opposition in the doll is not saying. We're in the middle of a property bubble. We need to deflate the property no, market. The we need to introduce consumption more, taxes. They? They've learned they're their say, lesson. They're They've saying, you burnt. guys are not yeah. spending enough. Look at these poor guys on waiting lists, et cetera, et cetera. I would add to that that there isn't a huge amount of media critique of it either, as I recall. There's not a huge amount. There are some. There are some uh, criticisms of it, but there's not much. In fact... And there's some cheerleaders as well. But there's a lot of cheerleaders for it. And, and remember that, you know, the first promise in the subsequent general election campaign in 2007, the first promise of tax cuts comes not from the PDs or Fianna Fáil, it comes from the Labour Party. And, uh, and so essentially you go through this period, you know, even there's, because a number of factors have caused house prices in 2006, they're beginning to moderate. So a huge part of this election debate in 2007 is how do we how do we restart growth in the property market? Sunday Independent is very fond of calling for stamp duty uh, reform. Michael McTool promises to abolish stamp duty because uh, because we don't need it. And all of this is in order to, because, you know, lots of people who are property owners, and there's lots of property owners, remember we're building 100,000 houses a year at this stage. They like the idea of the value of the it houses was going insanity, up. wasn't it? I mean, I lived through this and I knew that I mean, there, there was a sense at this point that there was a kind of a frenzy, a kind of consumerist frenzy. It wasn't quite the same kind of tone as you'd had seven or eight years ago when people were going, oh, my God, we've got some money for the first time. It was people were on a precipitous roll. Maybe this is just in retrospect uh, now. You don't think so? No, I, mean, I do. You- yeah, I, I, I do. I think there was probably a sort of a collective failure by the entire policymaking media political bubble not to okay and this story we're telling more cautious this story approach. we're telling of Bertie Ahern as a symbolic figure a representational figure for this uh, crucial period in Irish politics he is right at the center of that he is right at the center of it and to some respects he is the deliberate architect of this sort of second phase of that government which is dedicated to keeping things going as they have be going, been going before. So, I mean, it's all very well for me to sit here prissily 16 or 17 years later and, you know, pour scorn on, on everybody who was responsible for this. But I suppose it is valid to ask, you know, what would have happened if he'd tried to do things differently, if he'd tried to rein things in? 
Well, I, 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 you know, most counterfactuals are kind of, you can never come to a firm conclusion on them. But actually, I think if we posit this counterfactual, so let's say Bertie Ahern uh, visits Mystic Meg and Mystic Meg tells him what is going to happen in the Irish economy. He says, the only way I can avoid this is by introducing consumption taxes, uh, increasing stamp duty, taking deliberate means to slow the property market, halting wage growth and all that, and essentially deflating the uh, economy a little. If he had come out and said that in 2006, before the 2007 election, do you think, A, he would have been re-elected by a grateful populace who would say, you know what, you're right, you have made You've, you have brought us to our senses, Bertie, and it is time to deflate this uh, unsustainable economic boom to avoid disaster down the line. Or do you think, B, he would have lost the election and come back with... Happiness? So that's the most fundamental question of all, then. Isn't it about politics? He would have failed on the political level if he had done that. However, in, in the, on the historical... Uh, account of his career, he would have done the country a major service because the level of debt which we were all saddled with when the whole bloody thing fell apart would perhaps not have been as great. Uh, we would still have had an economic crash that was gruesome. As everybody did. But it wouldn't have been the worst economic crash in the world. And uh, and while a political leader can only get so far ahead of his followers, there is a duty of leadership. And I think, you know, like Bertie Hearn's legacy is is complicated and very substantial in many respects. But I think there's no doubt, no matter how benignly you might be inclined to look at it, that this period from 2004 to 2007 into 2008, as we will come to discuss, I think there's some very significant failures of leadership and of public policy. Is it going too far to describe it as irresponsible? I don't think so, actually. I don't think so. And in a way that is encapsulated by a story that I will come to tell uh, about the immediate uh, period before the 2007 election. But first, I think we might just pause there and look at that. While we're talking about the state's finances, which is, of course, Bertie Hearn's responsibility to act as responsible steward of at this stage, there's a massive political controversy about Bertie Ahern's finances as well. And that's playing out at the tribunals. And on that note, we'll leave it till the next time. And that's it from us for today. Thanks to Pat and to our producer, Declan Conlon. We're going to be back very soon indeed with the very final chapter, the last election of the Ahern years and the events that led to his departure from frontline politics. Until then, goodbye and thank you for listening.